so one of the the things that I think everybody gets wrong is they sort of think that a nation is a nation. You know, it's sort of a top-down view of how things work. Like, America is America, and it can just always be America. But actually, one of the, the principal philosophical underpinnings of America was a rejection of the idea of top-down authority. It was always the idea, um, particularly from the idea of the social contract from Rousseau, the idea that sovereignty actually comes from the people, right? And so that the people hand over certain amounts of rights or certain amounts of power to the state because the state is supposed to protect them and provide for them and make life better, right? Um, and, and actually, you know, like if you look back at philosophers like John Locke, John Locke in England would say, you know, a king who doesn't actually take care of his people is at war with his people, right? Which was the basis of this idea of sovereignty back and forth. Um, the, the sad truth, and, and listen, I, I know this might sound alarmist at the beginning, but it's, it's 100% true. America has stopped serving the interest of its people. Uh, this government has been bought and sold by corporations, special interests, and our parties have become so entrenched in their own, um, what I call a soap opera. I think it's, I think it's all spectacle for entertainment, you know, replete with characters, villains, heroes, all that stuff. It's become something that we're supposed to watch, but feel like we can't participate in. Um, on top of that, not everybody can run for office anymore. You have to be able to raise millions upon millions of dollars to do so. Um, and, and our interests are being served. We, we, we've been failed by the government. And, and I think one of the reasons why the Black Lives Matters protests have taken off the way that they have is not just because we've had a pandemic, which is obviously, you know, wreaked havoc, but we have a country and a government that has shown it not just an inability to fight the pandemic and the resulting economic depression, they've shown a complete unwillingness to do it. And I believe that it has exposed that this government cannot honor the sovereignty of the people. It can honor the social contract. And so what ends up happening in failed states is as trust in government and as that sovereignty becomes questioned, eventually what happens is there comes a break in the contract and the people rise up and the only thing the state can do is defend itself. Right. It can't offer you any sort of assistance. It can't uh, it can't honor any type of safety. It can't honor any type of contract. So what it has to do is actually crush the will of the people. So they'll stop. And, and what ends up happening is you end up in a state where the people don't respect the government and the government doesn't respect the people. But they want the people to be afraid and intimidated in order to not voice their concerns or use their rights. They would much rather people had rights that they didn't use as opposed to being an authoritarian fascistic state. Right. And um, and, you know, definitely COVID is uh, it's the late, you know, it's the most dramatic, but it's really only the latest in a long line of things that, you know, the state has no longer able to do. Yeah. And and. You know, I get really frustrated, particularly in um, in the middle of like a campaign season like this one. I tell everyone all the time, Donald Trump is not the disease. He's a symptom. You, a, a country that is sane and working and functional does not elect Donald Trump president. You know, you know that, that doesn't happen. Um, it, it never would have occurred had this country not had underlying problems. And, and what I ended up finding out, and this is one of the reasons why I ended up writing American Rule, is 
I could give you an explanation of why the parties have become what they are. And I can give you or I could give you like a, a pretty quick CNN definition of why Donald Trump got elected. But that doesn't tell us the story that needed to be told. What actually it turned out and I had to do the research on this and it was all right there for the taking. You just have to scratch underneath the surface is that America has not only been created on systematic inequality and brutality, but that throughout the entire course of this country, the story of America has been completely scrubbed of its evils and its sins in order to make it more palatable to the world. And the instances I've found is this has been a combination of people doing it for political purpose and in other times people doing it explicitly for political purposes, right? The idea that they could do it and then other times that they would intentionally do it. Like Woodrow Wilson, for instance, uh, before we went into World War One, hired a bunch of propagandists to basically get rid of America's, you know, uh, economic inequality and white supremacy. And then we we busted into World War One. We're like, hey, we're the champions of the world. Welcome. And, you know, so what's actually happened was America has been broken and teetering on the edge of collapse and chaos since it was founded. But this is one of those instances where the disease, so to speak, has just become terminal at this point. And, and it's, it's dragging the country into the abyss day by day. And then does this necessarily lead to managed democracy? Is that the next step of... That's the unfortunate thing. So, you know, just to get definitions out there, I assume the listeners are probably familiar, but there might be a couple, you know, not there yet. Liberal de- liberal democracy is the idea that, you know, the state is supposed to move forward. It's supposed to rely again on the sovereignty of the people and, and you know, democratic institutions guide it, right? It's about giving people freedom and, and sharing an open society. The truth is that America has never had that. Like, everyone likes to talk about, you know, we say make America great again as if the 1950s were awesome. They weren't great for people of color or LGBTQ Americans or women. You know, it was it was rough. Um, but a managed democracy is more like that. It's a state like 1950s America where on the outside it looks like everything's great and everyone's, you know, enjoying themselves and they're driving Model T. I don't know what they drove. I assume they had fins on it. And, you know, going to drive-in movies. But meanwhile, there's an underclass of people who are repressed, right? And everything that we see is manufactured. And it would look a lot more, and the the the, the term managed democracy actually um, came out of Putinist Russia um, post-2000. And, and this is sort of a, a state where you have this illusion of democracy. And meanwhile, the state controls everything. You know, this is how Donald Trump lies about everything and yells fake news and nobody knows what's what. And eventually over time, and the Soviet Union showed us this it could be achieved. And then later on, Putin and Putinish Russia showed us this could be achieved. If you lie enough, eventually the people just stop expecting the truth. And they stop expecting democracy. And it sort of crushes their will and it sort of crushes their back to the point where, again, maybe they have, quote unquote, rights, but they don't use them. Because why would you? Nothing could possibly change. And suddenly the game is rigged beyond the point of it ever being even, you know, manageable. And is, is that is that what Woolen, I think his name, man, uh, inverted totalitarianism, is that what he is that the same thing what he called inverted totalitarianism? Yeah, it's the idea that you have total power, but you don't necessarily have to wield it. Mm-hmm. 
right? Like, it, it, eventually what ends up happening, and this is the really perverted part about it, what ends up happening is that the weight of totalitarianism is carried by the people, right? And so, like, let's say... Let's say theoretically, right? The Black Lives Matters protest. And we've seen a shift in the past uh, couple of weeks. It's gone from, you know, police are still brutalizing people in the streets, right? But when this started, it was much more of a war, right? It was like, we do not want you in the street and we will brutalize you until you leave the street. Well, eventually in a society like what we're talking about, the state wouldn't need to send troops out anymore. It wouldn't have to, you know, have law enforcement go out and crack skulls. Eventually, people would just be like, why would I go outside and risk myself? Right. And so what ends up happening is the people end up carrying away. And if you look back at like the history of the Soviet Union, um, they started participating in the lies. They, they knew that the government was lying to them. And as a result, they started, you know, sort of participating in it. Um, there's a really good term that people should look up if they haven't had a chance. It's called hypernormalization. And hypernormalization is a state where you know that the reality that you are living in is not real, but you still participate in it. And because you participate in it, you actually lend it credence and power and reality. The uprising that we're seeing now, the, you know, Black Lives Matter protests and the George Floyd protests. Um, you said that they're just like a natural result of kind of being at the end of our rope as far as um, states failed us. Um, what, um, I mean, like, are there, do you see potential for reform coming out of these, this mass movement, or is it just kind of the death throes of democracy? little depressing but no i mean it, it is depressing there, there's different ways to look at it so like on one hand um you can look at it through a lens of what i call left-wing melancholia um which is the idea you know that like the left could never possibly win anything and and a lot of us have been had that beaten into us i know um i started coming into my political own starting in like 2003 during the the drumbeat to the Iraq war, right? And I was like, this war is illegal and awful. We shouldn't go. And I watched the country dive headlong into it and make one of the worst mistakes in modern history. So you can start to say, okay, this will not do anything. And, and I'll give you the case for it. And, and this is what I would say I would give you three scenarios from all of this. One scenario is the worst case scenario, which is, um, and unfortunately we're seeing this happen right now, uh, which would be right-wing vigilantes, Trumpist and militias going out into the cities and the streets and um, attacking protesters. I mean, uh, last night um, we saw, I, Monday night, we saw um, a militia, the Civil Guard, I believe they're calling themselves, uh, in New Mexico, we saw one of them shoot somebody. And, uh, you know, we're we're hearing all these stories about Boogaloo boys being in the streets and like escalating things um, killed a cop. One of them did, um, you know, so like we could see we could see violence and blood in the streets from those sort of things. We have a history of that. I mean, the um, civil rights had that. Obviously, the 50s, 60s, 70s all had that. Um, that's that's probably the worst case scenario. And that could plunge us into a really bad place. The next is that we get tertiary reform. And tertiary reform would be like, I don't know, you ban chokeholds, you know, or maybe more body cams, or maybe they get sensitivity training. I don't know. The best case scenario isn't necessarily spontaneous revolution or spontaneous change. 
But people need to start to realize that you build these things. Like, this is a huge building of a leftist power structure, right? So, like, you have people out in the streets. You're building, I mean, what was the last poll? It was like 72, 73% of Americans now understand what white privilege is and, you know, that, that white supremacy infects law enforcement. That's the beginning of a major voting block. I mean, when's the last time, like, 70% of Americans believed in anything? And then you're starting to get... You're going to get leaders from this. You're going to get people from these protests who see that protests can make a difference. And that means they'll do more protests. That means that they'll, you know, they'll fight for more things. And so what actually ends up happening is you have action that builds off itself. It scaffolds itself. So the best case scenario is that this thing continues and then it builds because I'm sorry, but the state's not going to get better anytime soon. Even if Donald Trump isn't reelected, that's only like the staunching of a wound, right? That doesn't actually make everything better. And the the hope is that it might actually build this sort of scaffolding of power and protest. You know, you're you're talking about tertiary reform and people actually understanding there's a concept of like systemic racism now, which, you know, three weeks ago, it's unheard of. I was just reminded of this uh, one militia leader that I'm friends with on Facebook. He wrote this long post, and it begins, So here I go, as a very conservative and proud white man going on record to affirm the existence of systemic racism. And he goes like that for like, you know, eight paragraphs. And, you know, it was just kind of like the conversation has definitely shifted in some ways. Um, And it's really, it's really an amazing thing to see. But, you know... I think the fear is that people poised to take most advantage of this moment are the realists, you know, from either the White House or, you know, corporations or Silicon Valley. And that um, they're playing it's like they're playing a different game than than we are. Oh, oh yeah. I mean, so I, I'm really glad that you brought up corporations and this whole thing because it's like you know everybody from twizzlers to like uh pepperoni you know has like sent out like a tweet it's like we support black lives matter or whatever now listen i i'm i'm really grossed out by these things because you know it's like i i'm, I'm an academic right i've watched administrators create these statements that just sound like everything but mean nothing right and it's 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 about it's about public relations it's about providing a front that says we believe this thing even while our actions don't show it it makes me happy for a couple of reasons one is that corporations they pick winners right They look at history and they decide which side of history they need to be on. And it is obvious that they understand that for future purposes, that progressivism is going to win out. They know that progressivism is going to own the future and that this backward sort of looking fascism has no place whatsoever. So they're putting their money and their investment in it. That that that's good. Number one. Number two. And I don't know if this is going to be the case because, man, they would much rather throw a couple of million at a cause and seem like they're behind it as opposed to actually have cultures of change. My hope is that it can be used as cudgels of change. So like if they go out and they say, we support black lives matter, we support inclusivity and divert and diversity. And then it can be like, well, show us, you know, what, what's your boardroom look like. And, and those are the types of ways. Now I, I would much rather have a head on sort of fight over 
how this system creates systemic inequality as opposed to how to reform it from the inside out. But I, I do gain a little bit of hope from that while also understanding that most of it's pretty hollow, right? Like it, it, it's, it's pretty disgusting is the word. It's, it's pretty disgusting the way that they do these things, particularly these companies that have created these systems and, you know, benefited from them. But on one hand, I look at it and I'm like, okay, well, at least we understand where they think the winner is going to come from. Mm-hmm. And, and how does, you know, an authoritarian state look not this year, but maybe in 10 years where, you know, the demographic changes in this country are so, you know, so pronounced, you know, Generation Z and the millennials having, you know, being a much more progressive generation. But even beyond that, just like whites no longer being the majority, you know, in the future. Um, I mean, I I'm not so naive as to think that just because those things are happening, then no longer corporations or fascists are going to have power. But like, how does authoritarianism look in a country like that? This is a nightmare, and I don't know if people who are listening are going to understand how nightmarish this is, and maybe they will. Um, So one of the only reasons why we're having this conversation is because I built up my own platform on, like, Twitter, right? Like, I I happen to have, like, my work hit, like, a note on Twitter, and since then I've, you know, built up this sort of presence on there, and it's, it's gone through whatever. Twitter has been very good to me, but Twitter is also a pinball machine. And basically, Twitter, if you look at technological history, social media is all about power. It's being powered by persona and anxiety, right? And so one of the things that people have done, obviously, is performative outrage. It's turned into a thing where it's like, you know, like we just talked about, Twizzlers or Pepperoni sending out the statement on Black Lives Matter. We all send out those statements, right? We all want to be on the record that we're on the right side of this thing. The future that you're talking about, that fascistic sort of world, looks a lot like what the last three years under Donald Trump have been like, which is you have a person in charge who's disgusting. All of us are screaming, why isn't somebody doing anything about this thing? And meanwhile, there's no way to address it whatsoever. So imagine what the last three or four years under Donald Trump have been like, but just turned up a couple of degrees. And, and and all of us are still yelling about this stuff and we're still performing it, but we're not performing it for actual change. We're performing it for our personal corporate brand, right? We're trying to show that, okay, I'm not out in the street right now, but this is a thing that offends me, right? It sort of hedges the bet like a corporation. And unfortunately, that corporatization mindset goes through things like social media. And this is one of the reasons why during the era of Trump, Social media has taken off. It's where we go to complain about this monster, but we're also complaining as a matter of performance. And we don't even know necessarily that we're always doing it, mm-hmm. right? Right, right. From like a Marshall McLuhan perspective, you know, like our behavior is being dictated by our media and the ways we communicate and the ways we entertain ourselves and the ways we educate ourselves and the way we work. And I don't think that's changing anytime soon. I don't either. And that's the sad truth of all this. And this goes back to what I said about Donald Trump is the symptom and not the disease. Right. We have to. And and this is one thing I keep hoping that everything keeps coming back around to. We have to reexamine what we think society should look like and feel like. 
right? I, I, I think it needs to be a larger conversation about fairness, equality, and, but also st- sustainability, you know? So, like, meanwhile, while we're fighting, I mean, we, we have a, a literal authoritarian fascist in the White House right now. Meanwhile, underneath that, we have a lot of people who are all competing not only to, quote unquote, fight it, but also to profit off of it. I mean, one of the reasons why Donald Trump is president is because the news media is wired to profit off of him, right? He's the best thing that happened to newspapers and cable news, period. And and whenever I was covering the 2016 campaign, they would tell me that. When the cameras were off or we were at the bar at a quality inn, that's what we talked about. It was the fact that oh, this is the rising tide that rises all ships. And and people would say, God, I don't know what it's going to be like after he loses. I'm almost dreading it. Well, we can't live in a culture like that. Like, that's not a sustainable culture. I mean, obviously, it's gotten us to the point where our state is failing and we're all endangered. But if you look to other countries, they always have resistance. It just so happens what you do with the resistance. Like, so, for instance, in Russia, there's a lot of protesters. There's a lot of people who consider themselves a resistance to Putin. But they also live in going back to that left wing melancholia where it's like, well, we can't do anything about it. He's all powerful. He controls everything. Plus, also the media, you know, licks his boots every night and carries his water. And so you have people who are still doing the job, but with no expectation of actual change. And and that purgatory for me is less like purgatory and more like hell. You know, the idea that things can get better or that people aren't going to get taken care of. I, uh, I, I'll i just say this, because I know this is some heavy stuff, and, and I know that it's 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 a bummer, but I've been, I've been really hopeful lately. I mean, th- this is a scary time with COVID, and this is a scary time with an economic depression looming, and with Donald Trump and rising fascism in our streets. The fascists are showing who they are which means they're terrified. They would much rather hide behind that veneer that we were talking about. But, you know, with things like Tom Cotton's op-ed calling for troops in the streets, Donald Trump, I mean, literally tried an authoritarian gesture with the Bible and going out in front of that church, like, and, and talking about sending troops in the street. Like, it was it was an actual appeal to fascism. When When they feel threatened is when they have to reveal who they are. And this movement right now is being successful in making these people not only reveal who they are, but look at what they're having to argue. They're having to argue in favor of the Confederacy. That's not something they want to argue over. Like Ronald Reagan, Richard Nixon, the Bushes, all of them would much rather talk about taxes and laws and dog whistles, right? They can't hide behind that anymore. They have to actually come out and defend the Confederacy, which I think is hopeful. And I think people should feel like there's like a little bit of movement happening here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, like the um, the about face when when Trump did, you know, his thing with the Bible and then people got pissed off about it and it became like a big black eye. And then, you know esper and whoever else came out and you know apologized for having their picture taken like that's pretty amazing that like you know that somebody that an authoritarian would make this like gesture that you know right out of mussolini and um and so quickly it backfires and so quickly you know he's apologizing and sending the national guard home and everything else well so i grew up um i grew up in like I've now termed it the cult of the shining city, right? Which is the label that I've given to white identity, neo-Confederate evangelicalism, 
right? So let me tell you something. When Trump pulled the Bible stunt, my blood ran cold, man. I was just like, there it is. That's a holy war, you know, call call to arms. He's going to get the military in there. Blood's going to run in the streets. The fact that it was soundly rejected was a huge turning point. And I actually don't think that we're going to appreciate it for what it was. I think that was a massive turning point in America. And I think that's one of the reasons why the momentum has gone against him since then. He couldn't get the authoritarian move that he wanted. And that doesn't mean he won't try again. And it doesn't mean that he couldn't be successful. But that was a, like you said, it was a blatant Mussolini move, right? It was like, I'm going to declare martial law and I'm going to, you know, paint the streets with blood. And the fact that people turned their backs on it and rejected it, I think is a massive reason for hope. I think that's one of the, the bigger moments of modern history that I think people just don't understand yet. Yeah. And, and you know, it, it really just feels like that, you know, the only way we're going to stop this kind of managed democracy that we're talking about or corporate democracy or whatever is if people actually understand <laughs> what's at stake, which... um if you'd have asked me a month ago if that was even possible, I'd be like, no, probably not. But, you know, people seem to be catching on. I think keeping the conversation going and the education going and not f- feeling satisfied or becoming complacent with, like, you know, you know, whatever feeble um, gestures reforms come out of this is um, is going to be key. But I think it's, yeah, I think it's very hopeful yeah, and, and that that's weird. So, like, I, you know, I said I'd listen to your podcast. Like, you know, I can't believe that we're sitting here talking about hope on, you know, failed states. But it is. It actually is hopeful because, and, and here's the thing. I said earlier that, like, conspiracy theories are all about simplifying matters, right? The things that hold back what we're talking about, the things that are, that, that maybe should give you pause and make you worry, is that the truth is complicated, It really is. Like, to get to the truth, you have to understand a lot of very um, big concepts that, again, I didn't understand until I wrote the book, American Rule. And I had to do, like, all of the background research and go into all this stuff. So it was very, very complicated. The other part is it runs counter to the identity of a lot of these people. Like, when people think about America, they, they consider themselves Americans, waving flags, watching NASCAR. Well, not anymore. You know, and all of this stuff. But the third thing here, this is the reason for hope. It is the truth. You know what I mean? And the truth sings through. And so, like, if you actually have the truth on your side and you're willing to fight for it, you win. But you have to fight for it. It's not enough to simply own it and possess it and know it. You have to get out there and you have to tell people. And when people hear the truth and when it's told in a way that they can hear it and listen to it, it wins. Because this is the truth. The conspiracy theory and all this fascist nonsense are lies. But when you tell the people the truth and you tell it in a way they can hear it, it works. mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. 
Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, this is Joseph L. Flatley, and you are listening to Failed State Update. I am recording this on October 2nd, 2020. It's a Friday. And I actually just spoke to Jared Yates Sexton, return guest and uh, friend of the show. He has a new book out called American Rule. What is the subtitle of American Rule? How a Nation Conquered the World But Failed Its People. It's an important book, and it's a good book. I've had a chance to read it. It's really about how we can't get where we need to go unless we know where we've been. And uh, I'm sure he could put it much more eloquently than that, Jared being a uh, creative writing professor. But um, that's what I see. Anyways, that's what I got out of it. And, you know, it's me, so by the time I get, we get through it, you know, we're talking about satanic panic and cults and QAnon and all kinds of good stuff. So this has been a weird day, a weird week, a weird year. And American life is weird, and it's only fitting that this uh, conversation should go into some weird places. So without further ado, here is Jared Yates Sexton. Whatever it takes, rid this dictator. POTUS my tail, ask the beta. Prime time, primo, rhyme time, crime. Like no other in this lifetime. White House killer, dead in lifelines. Vote this joke out, or die trying. Unprecedented, minute, many presidented. Nazi Gestapo, dictator defendant. It's not what you think, it's what you follow. Run for them jewels, drink from that bottle. Another four years, gonna gut your hollow. Gun it out, dry it up. I'm Jared Yates Sexton. I am a professor of writing and linguistics. Uh, I'm a political analyst and the author of American Rule, How Nation Conquered the World But Failed Its People, which is a retelling and re-examination of American history um, and an open assault on the idea of American exceptionalism, which I discovered in writing the book was uh, weaponized propaganda that has hidden a lot of the um, mistreatment by the American government and uh, the the way in which people have been controlled by the story of America, which isn't uh, true at all. Yeah, you know, the one thing I was thinking, I've been having this discussion with a lot of people lately, some who are probably qualified to have the discussion and others like me just kind of talking out our ass a little bit. But, you know, I've been seeing so much like, is the Trump base a cult? Or is, um, you know, is QAnon a cult? Um, and I think, or, you know, even saying, is Trump mentally ill? You know, it's like, I think it's really dangerous to kind of like frame the problems and the things that we're experiencing now as somehow aberrations or like overstate how peculiar and strange they are, because this is like the natural progression of of what's been happening for the last you know 200 years or whatever. I, I always make it a point whenever I do something like this to um, say that Donald Trump is a symptom. 
He's not the disease. Um, you know, and, and one of the things that really kind of drove me nuts was when I was talking to people about Donald Trump, a lot of people would say to me things like, uh, <clears throat> you know, the founding fathers must be rolling over in their graves, you know, or that something had gone wrong in America to lead to this point. And what I ended up discovering in my research was that the founding fathers were only concerned with creating a system of control that prioritized wealthy white men, first and foremost. Uh, if they got told that a supposed billionaire was the president of the United States, they would have believed that he was a like high quality person who should be like respected and uh, you know could t lead the country in a in a talented way. But on top of that, it's it's unfortunate that. America has lived within this mythology, this really, really fake alternate reality. Um, it's a religious nationalistic myth. And the end result of that, the, the longer we went with it and the more that we were stuck inside of it, we were eventually going to arrive at like a late term moment. And we've arrived at a late term moment. And what's happening in this country specifically is that America is faltering and as a nation that has myths of exceptionalism and you know nationalist um, specialization, when those happen and they start to fall apart, fascism comes up from the cracks. It starts feeding on the disease tissue of the exceptional myth. Yeah, and you know, um, like I've been reading. Uh, I'm gonna Nicholas. Oh, what was his name? Um, Goodrich Clark. The uh, he what he wrote the he wrote about like the influences of, of the occult or mysticism on the third Reich. And, um, I don't know why the name of the book's escaping me, but, um, even that, like, it's important to acknowledge that, like, that wasn't some aberrant thing. It wasn't like, you know, some, some malevolent force came out of nowhere and like created these monsters out of men. Like that was, part of the time and the culture the volkish movement was as much every bit as much of the culture in germany and you know turn of the century as you know nationalist christianity is now yeah and you know that you know whenever you start talking about the third reich like some people just sort of like their eyes roll and they're done you know what i mean but but what i actually discovered is there is a um a really disturbing link between the United States of America and the rise of the Third Reich. In fact, ideologically and philosophically, we're linked directly to them. So this Volkish movement or the idea that Germany is a chosen country and the power comes from like the people embodied, that there's something inherent, inherently special about them. Uh, that, that sort of came about at the same time that the myth of a manifest destiny happened within America. And, you know, of course, this is in the 19th century when you start seeing like the expansion of the United States and you start having what's called the Romantic period. Whereas, you know, as like the world is sort of growing and changing, they, they start romanticizing things like ethnic tribes who settled Europe. Right. There's a lot of talk about like Anglo-Saxons. Right. And then in Germany, there's a lot of talk about, you know, the, the, the Germans who settled that area. And so they actually go through the the United States and Germany go through the exact same movements at the exact same time. And in fact, this is one of the reasons why we carried out the genocide against the Native Americans. Right. It's the exact same mindset. It's the, the, the living space, if you will. Right. They took place in Germany. Well, so eventually what ends up happening is that 
in uh, in the early 20th century, there are tons of Americans who are obsessed with eugenics, who are obsessed with open white supremacy. You have a couple of these guys, uh, uh, Lothrop Stoddard and Madison Grant. They write books like The Passing of the Great Race or The The Rising Tide of Color Against White Supremacy. They're bestsellers here, but they're also bestsellers in Germany. They're, they're coming in and they're also giving like, uh, they're advising Congress on immigration. They're dealing with eugenics. Our eugenicists are going over to Germany, helping them set up, you know, their eugenics situation. And in fact, this is the thing. We've been told the story that, of course, we fought Germany in World War II and we were the champions and we beat them and, you know, erased fascism or whatever. We had a fascistic movement in this country. Like, Nazism was really popular in America, and open fascism was very popular in America. And, you know, Hitler was actually, like, calling on America to join him in a crusade for white supremacy. And Charles Lindbergh, who, you know, now has been maligned as, like, the leader of the American First Movement, uh, was calling for us to join in a white union with Germany and Italy and France and England. So one of the sad truths is, this stuff is not fascism and Nazism, all that. It's not an aberration that happened in the 20th century in Western Europe. It's part of the human experience, and America is especially susceptible to it because of our philosophy and our history and our mythology. Yeah, and and if you look at, like, to go back to the Volkisch movement in Germany, um, it served a real purpose of uniting, which up until that point wasn't even a country you know, bringing the people together in this new German state. Um, and I think Manifest Destiny served a lot of the same role as far as, like, America was just starting to conceive of itself as a player on the world stage, you know, like, being the the superpower or a superpower was, you know, still far off. But, um, but yeah, and even, like... I don't even know what you would call it. Like the Trump base now, like seems to be playing the same role, like in a, in a much different world though. Like America, it's not America ascendant. It's America falling apart and, you know, people trying to hold on to these myths that they value. Well, I mean, the, this is a thing that I don't think a lot of people like to talk about. America is a failing nation. I mean, it, it, like, like today, we're, we're, we're talking on October 2nd, by the way. I mean, the president of the United States was diagnosed, I don't know, like 16 hours ago with coronavirus, right? And, you know, spread it to basically the entirety of the government. Everybody he's ever met now has coronavirus. We have this pandemic that is raged. On top of that, I mean, there's parts of this country where the infrastructure is falling apart. People don't have clean drinking water. We are the only industrialized nation that doesn't have some form of, like, universal health care. You know, it, it, if, 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 like, a hurricane comes to your town and wipes your town off the map, no one's there to help you. Like, the, the, the function of state is gone. And, and the big reason why is because... Over the last few decades, it's been a giant redistribution of wealth project. It's been all about taking our tax money and our wealth and our so-called treasure and then putting it towards American hegemony and going out and, and conquering and you know subduing possible threats or whatever. We've done that, and we've reached the point where late-stage capitalism and hyper-capitalism have bought and sold our government. And so we do not have a government that serves the interest of people anymore. Well, if you have a legend or a myth that says that America was chosen by God 
as like God's champion on the face of the earth. Well, if God's on your side, how could you ever lose? How could you ever start failing? And what you end up finding throughout history is when countries that have these nationalistic mythologies, when they start failing, you have to explain why. And fascism sweeps in and fascism says, you've been betrayed and there are traitors in our midst and we need to take care of them through any means possible. And so here, here are the ways we're gonna do it. Give us all the power, get rid of the laws, get rid of all the safeguards, give us the power, we'll take care of the threat. And unfortunately, that's what we're seeing with Trumpism. Yeah, and you know, I was I was talking to a relative. I won't I won't out out him, um, just in case he ever learns what a podcast is. But um, you know, he was telling me why he was voting for Trump, and he wasn't happy about it. He's like, but you know, that's these are my options, and I got to go with my guy. And um, you know, I just came out of that. I didn't even try to talk him out of it or anything. I I just came out of that conversation thinking: imagine going to work every day of your life, coming home watching like the evening news on on your local station reading the newspaper in the morning being told how the world is and then waking up one day you know you're 70 years old and everything's falling apart <laughs> like you'd be you'd be a mess too and i think that kind of is your book the pro- you know the point of your book is to kind of enlighten people a little bit cuz this stuff isn't coming from out of nowhere Well, you know, the last time you and I talked, we talked a lot about conspiracy theories and conspiracy theory cults. And a a, a big reason that you have those, and especially why they have taken, you know, such precedence lately, is because the the people that we're talking about, a lot of them have no understanding of, of what has happened. And it's because they've been lost in this weaponized mythology. I mean, I didn't know this stuff until I started writing the book. I, I have to tell you, man, like, I just thought I would go through and find a little bit more understanding. And it was like in the first chapter. I don't know if you know this. The founding fathers who wrote the Constitution actually didn't have authority to write the Constitution. Like they they weren't there to write a new Constitution. They were there to revise the Articles of Confederation. And they got there and James Madison's like, I don't know, let's do it. And then all of a sudden they just did it. Like I had no clue. So it was like from the very beginning, it really messed with my head. And I realized very quickly that our real history looked absolutely nothing like what we had been told. Well, if you've been living in that, and um, you know, if, if your listeners are familiar with the um, the uh, the metaphor of the cave, Plato's cave, which is that we're all stuck in this cave, right? And and reality, we we know one reality, but there's a reality outside of it. When you don't know that there's another reality to look for. You're like, what the hell? What, why did, Why is everything that's always worked, why is it falling apart? This America that I know in the books, in the movies, on the TV, in politician speeches. Well, if we're so great and there's something about us that's special, why is my family suffering? Why is my town decrepit? Why is my country failing over and over and over again? And that leaves a giant, giant room for someone to fill that vacuum. It leaves a place for someone to come in and give you an explanation and scapegoat somebody. And that's where the fascism comes in. So, so what is your take on like the, uh, you know, the Trump base or like that culture, you know, it's like, I don't even know what to call it anymore. I think, you know, cult (laughs) sounds, sounds well rhetorically, even though cult experts I've spoken to say it's technically not a cult just because like, some academics are going to say that Trump isn't technically a fascist, which I understand, but he's a fascist, <laughs> you know, it's like, 
This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. People are really, they're really focused on drawing a line between politics and religion, but politics and religion are inextricably interlinked. I mean, like one, the project I'm doing right now, I'm a, I've actually gone back to like ancient Rome. And what you find is the basis of Western civilization is the interconnection between politics and religion. That's how, that's how you talk about politics. And, and everyone's like, well, religion's one thing, politics, no, they're the exact same. Like they're just different ways to explain and make decisions. And in this case, what you see is that effective politicians actually create cults of personality around them, right? I mean, and, and, and like, just to be fair, Barack Obama created a cult of personality around him, but he didn't need it, right? He did it to win an election. And once he won an election, he was like, well, we don't need that anymore. Donald Trump has created around him a religion. And that's one of the reasons you have like weird stuff like QAnon. It's a literal religion that worships him and makes him infallible. And that's why it's so kooky when you're not inside of it. I actually truly believe it is a cult. I, I, I think that I think that politics and religion are 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 linked like that. I think what we're seeing right now, particularly with uh, Trumpism and with fascism, I think they're cults. Yeah, you know, and I went through this a lot. I just finished a book um about a cult, a destructive cult. And, um, you know, and I kind of struggled with that a lot because you hear a lot of, uh, you know, like some people I really respect, you know, like this one woman in particular, uh, she's a uh, sociologist and she's an expert on religions and she's very adamant that cult isn't a useful word. You know, you're supposed to refer to them as new religious movements. And trying to kind of get into that, mode of like all right describing it as a new religious movement and trying to figure out like how to i tried to figure out how to describe this thing uh constructively without using the word cult and i just came to the conclusion you know <laughs> if it quacks like a duck it, it was just like you know it's a cult well i think i okay so uh, first of all I'm, I'm an academic and i have to tell you how tired I am of all of this parsing out that academics do because w one of the problems is like academics have been siloed off and attacked and vilified for so long. Right. And so they have to be incredibly careful when they deal with this stuff. Well, I'm, I'm sorry, but we have a situation where we have a person who has co-opted a religion, which is what happens in a cult. And by the way, like I was writing about this in American rule, you actually see like with like Nazism, they took over Christianity first. Like the Italian fascist movement worked with the Catholic Church. Like you, you, what happens is the fascistic group is a power base that works with a religion, which, by the way, is looking for power. They come together, they combine, and then eventually what ends up happening is, so in, in Nazi Germany, it was positive Christianity. And positive Christianity was this 
absolute wacko group that believed that the first anti-Semite was Christ and that to be anti-Semitic made you more like Christ-like. So you actually see this thing where like Goebbels and the Nazis and all of these Nazi preachers, they're calling Adolf Hitler the new revelator, right? Like he has the new revelation. And then eventually they're like, oh, don't worry about your, your Bibles anymore. All you need is Hitler. Well, guess what? It's when those groups, those religious groups, start looking for power, they start finding these strong men, and they think they're divine agents, right? Like Donald Trump is like a faulty messiah, so to speak. And so they start latching on to them, and all of a sudden they become, quote-unquote, Christ-like. They start becoming infallible. And so what ends up happening, exactly like a cult, is you start following these people, and you start laundering what they do. You start looking at everything they do through a lens of godliness. And every mistake that they possibly make has to be in the aid of God, because suddenly they have that divine agent status. So that is exactly how a cult works. It just so happens that it's a political cult. But if you go within a religious cult, so to speak, and again, because politics and religion are interlinked, if you go within a religious cult, that's just about power and control, too. Right, right. And, you know, it just occurs to me as you're talking, one of the dynamics that I found really interesting when I was studying this cult, um, like the guru-disciple dynamic, it's like you think of the follower, the cult follower, the person that gets suckered in as having... You know, one of the control mechanisms is the cult leader controls what media they consume and controls what they see and think, and it puts them in a bubble, and that bubble differs from consensus reality, so they're more easily controlled. But one thing that gets overlooked is the cult leader is in his bubble, and he goes through the same process, and he ends up believing his bullshit, for lack of a better term, and becoming unmoored. I mean, that's how you get like a Koresh or a Jim Jones is... You know, it's like the same things that are, you know, at play with the follower becomes at play with the cult leader. And, you know, if we're going to talk about extreme demagogues like Hitler or Trump, I think there are some parallels between the two. Yeah, I would even take it like, OK, so I love the I love this concept of the idea that is like this, um, this sort of like rapidly closing circle. Right. Like like it's just always shrinking around them. And and to go along with that, I, I would love to go ahead and talk a little bit about how we got to this point in the first place, because it's not like Trump appeared and suddenly here we were. The Republican Party has been playing this game for decades, because one of the things that ends up happen ends up happening, and I didn't realize this is you actually see in the 1980s, the Republican Party kind of thought they were done after Richard Nixon, right? And of course they get forward, but you know, after that, they're kind of like, I, I don't, I, we're in trouble, right? We don't really appeal to anyone. The demographics don't really work for us. And then they suddenly realize that with Carter, there's like this divide between Carter and like the evangelicals. So they, they seal like the most like perverted deal between the Republican Party and the evangelical right. And if you actually like sit there and look at what the evangelical right is, it's not just religion. That's the problem is, is I was talking to Jeff Charlotte about this the other day. Everyone's like, oh, they're just Christians. No, they're not Christians. They're Confederate Christians. They have a religion that was based in the Confederate States of America. The idea that God is a white supremacist who has chosen white people to just dominate everything, right? So they, that group makes a deal with Ronald Reagan, who, by the way, is there for tax cuts and like, you know, redistribution of wealth from the bottom up. And it just goes and goes and goes for years. And by the way, what was Reagan? 
Reagan actually wasn't religious. He was actually really, really occultish. He was super into like astrology and psychics and cults of power. Like one of his main uh, spiritual advisors was a guy named Manly P. Hall, who was obsessed with Atlantis and secret societies and all this bullshit. When I visited that cult um, that I wrote the book about, like the cult leader was talking about whatever, and then he got off topic and went on this jag about Manly P. Hall. Oh, they... These people, these people love him. And by the way, Manly P. Hall, this isn't just like some random kook. Like he was like a really popular kook. Like you know what I mean? Like in the in like the mid twentieth uh, century. I mean, this guy was selling books left and right. He was giving sold out lectures all over California. It's part of that new age California sort of idea. And, and people like Manly P. Hall are at the center of it. Well, what ends up happening is that the Republican Party, because they go with Reagan. They start getting weird, man. I mean, there's a reason why we had the satanic panic in the 1980s, because Reagan was basically a mascot for religious nationalistic revivalism, right? He tells the country that America is perfect, we need to apologize for anything, there's nothing America can't do, God is on our side, we're facing the evil empire. Well, guess what? When you start facing the evil empire and you're an agent of God, Satan's going to try and take you down. So instead of talking about crime and poverty and, like, inequality, we start talking about demons and possession and child sacrifice. Sounds familiar, right? So we end up getting at this point where the Republican Party throws in their lot with this. And then in the 1990s, the Democratic Party is like, well, if we can't beat Ronald Reagan's version of America, we're going to out Reagan Republicans. So like Bill Clinton and Al Fromm and the DLC, which, by the way, is still it, it's completely reconfigured American politics. Like the Democratic Party moved to the right and the Republican Party had a choice, which was fight them on the right. Or just go overboard, you know, go into like bananas territory. So all of a sudden you start seeing in the 1990s, the Republican Party and the NRA realize in order to keep hold of power, they have to start playing footsie with things like the New World Order conspiracy theory. They got to start flirting with the Patriot movement. They got to start telling people the Democrats and because, you know, the Soviet Union's out of the picture there, they have to start telling people the fascistic conspiracy theory that we have traitors in our midst. There's nothing wrong with America besides the liberal traitors. Well, I'm telling you, after decades upon decades of not just telling their, their supporters that, but then Fox News, which, by the way, is a 24-hour-a-day New World Order conspiracy theory machine, after years of telling people that, they end up believing it. And, and all of a sudden, it starts falling within itself. You get the Tea Party, and then you get Trumpism, all because they're lost in this fake narrative that these people lost control of because that circle got smaller and smaller and smaller. Yeah, you know, I've been thinking about the Satanic Panic and the Cold War a lot, just because this one project I'm working on um, involves a former FBI agent named Ted Gunderson, you might be familiar with. And he was like, basically, he was a... He rose through the ranks of the FBI, um, eventually being the special agent in charge of the Los Angeles office of the Bureau, which is like a ma massive, important job. And then he left and just started like opened up a PI firm and started throwing himself into these cases that would always like basically any conspiracy theory of the eighties or nineties, he threw himself in the middle of somehow. And, you know, there's been a lot of, I've been trying to answer the question. How does this guy go from being 
so responsible or so so revered, well loved, um, considered like the ultimate incredibility. I mean, you know, he's got a. Uh, He's got J. Edgar Hoover sending him condolence cards when he's like on his back because he had hemorrhoid surgery. You know, it's just like, you know, he's he was in the power structure. And then next thing you know, he's like trying to like chase down Satan worshipers. And then it occurs to me as I dug into his FBI files and, you know, saw how the kind of stuff that he was a specialist in when he was in the Bureau was like wiretapping and tracking down like student movements and hippies and black panthers and all this stuff so it's like the cold war paranoia and the satanic panic paranoia are not really that much different no in fact they are completely interconnected i by the way i did not expect you to go down that road but i have to once you started like the moment you said j edgar hoover i was like i hope he says this i hope he says this i hope he says this because it's exactly the same thing. And, and one of the, the most batshit things that I found is what we're living through right now is something that we have seen so many times over. And it's this story. And, and in America, uh, and, and, you know, you could go back further because the Confederate States of America were based on conspiracy theories. Right. I mean, that, that was all about the fear that, you know, people were going to come and like create like uprisings or whatever. But let's just go the 20th century. Let's go after World War One, because the moment the Russian Revolution happens, America has its natural foil because America is a hyper capitalistic society. Right. So communism is, you know, public enemy number one. Well, after World War One. Everybody knows about the Red Scare in the 1940s and 1950s. Well, the first Red Scare is in 1919. And once we're coming back from war, everyone's like, oh, man, the Russians are going to really work over African-Americans and make them rise up against us and kill us. So we should probably go out and kill them. And so all of a sudden you see a bunch of lynchings. You see a bunch of massacres. You see, like, you know, groups of white Americans thinking that they are defending themselves from, like, uprisings by manipulated people of color. And by the way, that's one of the biggest myths, right, is that people of color are they're good people. They're not so smart. They're not so talented. They're going to be manipulated by people on the outside. Right. That's one of the main white supremacist conspiracy theories. Well, because Russia was there, it's like, well, and, and by the way, it's like in The New York Times, it's in the biggest newspapers. It's like these these articles about the Reds are trying to stir people up. So all of a sudden, and this is another part of fascism, it's legitimizing preemptive violence. They are going to hurt us. We have to hurt them first. So instead of hurting citizens, right, or veterans of World War I, you're hurting terrorists. You're hurting people who will hurt you and hurt your family. So they went ahead, they hurt them first, they lynched them, they murdered them, they slaughtered them, massacred them. Well, it happens again in the 1940s, 1950s with the Red Scare. It's the exact same thing. They're coming for us. We have to do something about them. And it continues and continues and continues, except for after the fall of the Soviet Union, it then moved to the New World Order. And in the New World Order, it's just the protocols of the elders of Zion, just in a new pair of clothes. And then it becomes the deep, deep state. And then it becomes QAnon. It's the exact same story over and over and over again. And, and what you're talking about, the, the FBI going after all these student groups in the 1960s, 1970s, they thought they were communists. Yeah, yeah, that they, was the whole justification is they're, they're talking to Moscow. Right. And, and by the way, it's if, if you've spent any time listening to like the Richard Nixon tapes, 
He thought everybody was in on a conspiracy. It was all of his enemies, right? And him and Hoover are figuring out ways with COINTELPRO and, and all these other things that they get into. They get into it because they think that they're taking on a terrorist threat. And, and it just seemed like they were buttoned up. But when you start looking in those files of people like that dude, you start realizing, oh, my God, these conspiracy theories and myths have been con- continually perpe- perpetrating over and over and over. And, you know, looking at the media, you know, this Ted Gunderson guy doing like Lexus searches for the media about him while he was news articles, press stuff while he was in the FBI and all the clippings that are included in his FBI file. And then looking at like the satanic panic, like news coverage at the time, the news media just repeats this stuff, whatever they're told without even critically thinking about it. Like, you know, uh, talking about like, you know, some guys get arrested because they're like, basically they were like driving around in a van with the chil- the children of their themselves of this group that they were in that was like totally legit and legal. And some of the kids were there, their kids, you know, but they looked funny to somebody in Tallahassee, Tallahassee, Florida. So they called the police and like, like right away, you know, the police is saying, and the news is rep- repeating, uh, you know. We think they're involved with animal worship. We think they're involved with selling kids. Stuff that is legitimately really crazy and you would think would raise the eyebrows of any journalist. And and the journalism and the news media is just accepting this like it's the most natural thing in the world to be told that kids are part of like a, you know, a, a child, you know, trauma and abuse, hypnotizing, you know, CIA, whatever, you know, and it's just like totally credulous. Well, let me tell you. Okay. I, I this blew my mind because it's part of the new project that I, I, I've been working on. I went back to um, went back to ancient Rome when Christianity was just sort of like a fringe cult. And by the way, back then you could just say a cult, and it wasn't like big and you know controversial, right? So when Christianity was like this uh, fringe cult, and it was illegal to be a Christian, and they worshipped underground, they went into the catacombs, they did it like in you know the dark and all this stuff. Do you know what they said about Christians? Do you know what the Romans said? They said that the Christians were abusing children, they were killing them, they were drinking their blood and using it for magical powers. This is back at the beginning of the modern age. Well, guess what? Immediately when the Christians gained power, do you know what they said about the pagans? Do you know what they said about the Jewish people? They said that they were abusing and sacrificing children and drinking their blood for magical powers. This idea of blood libel, which most people go ahead and take back to the medieval age, no, it goes back to the very beginning. It's the same thing. And that's the sad truth is it, it, people are susceptible to it. These myths are, 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 are ingrained in us, and, and they just continue to work. Yeah, it sounds like it's just what people do when they want to attack an outgroup. It sounds like, like human exactly. beings. Exactly, and, and so you, and that's the whole thing, is like, um, you know, I, I'm trying to think of who it was. Maybe it was uh, Sapiens. I don't know if you've read that book. But this, it, it's basic, uh, it's a look at uh, human history. And there's a lot of time that it spends talking about, like, chimpanzee brains and, like, primate brains and what they do and, like, how we have stories, Right. That's one of our main sort of like uh, evolutionary uh, uh, traits. And we have this ability that like we want to protect our group 
We want to make sure that that group doesn't gain power or hurt us. So we start creating stories. And again, it's like, it, if you think about it, the children thing, it's just about procreation. And it's about making sure that you have more numbers and making sure that the most vulnerable of your group isn't susceptible to this violence. But it's, it's, it, it's so like ingrained and reptilian. But when I tell people about this, I've talked to a few people who are like deep in the QAnon thing and I started showing them my research and they were like, oh, I kind of need to look into this. And it's like, yeah, you're right. You're falling for the oldest scam in the book. So once we have the, an understanding of like why people are behaving like this and how people came to believe these things, what is there to be done? Well, okay, so first and foremost, I think even talking about it is like really important and very powerful, right? Like like part of the problem, and, and, and I've really tried to wrap my head around this, and this is what I've come around to. Part of the problem is in the past few decades, that mythology that we're talking about, this fake story about America, this propagandized idea of what America is and what it's been, the problem is it's not, it hasn't been challenged. Like, if you look at America, right, the Democratic Party and the Republican Party, their their speeches are pretty interchangeable. You know what I mean? Like, they're and, and, and it's all about, you know, we went to the moon once and we we, we beat, you know, the, the fascist and we won. We, we did D-Day or whatever. Those stories are the same. And it just so happens that like there there's like a small cudgel of issues, a small cleavage of issues that separate them. You know what I mean? Like and they're not even real issues like like I keep trying to say this. We're arguing about stuff we don't even really need to argue about. Like, do we need to argue about black lives mattering? No, black lives do matter. We shouldn't even have to argue about that. You know what I mean? Like, like we're, we're arguing about stuff that like it's. It's absurd that it's still even an issue. Like, we're arguing about, should these people be able to use this bathroom? Go to hell. Like, obviously, that's not what we... We should be arguing about where our taxes go. We should be arguing about what a successful healthcare system looks like. I feel like when we start realizing that the story is propagandized and that these myths are there to control us, when we start pushing back on this stuff that was conventional wisdom, and I don't know about you, but it's like times where I've questioned America in good faith, I've been called a traitor. I've been called a terrorist, right? And and that I, I'm, I'm shameful or that I should be driven from public life or whatever. Well, we have to start talking about the reality of it. And then when we get beyond that mythology, we might be able to have actual conversations again. But we can't operate in that alternate reality because that alternate reality is created for and maintained by fascists because that's where they get their power from is that mythology. It's where they control the conversation and they control society is through that story. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I do not come from academia. I barely graduated from high school, but, um, you know, I've been in, activist i've been in activist circles for you know the entirety of my adult life and um i just think how we communicate with other people is so important and i see this with academics and i see this with activists not all of them obviously but i see that's a tendency to talk over people or to not try to communicate at their level um i mean understanding what's like taking a step out of like the media bubble and trying to understand what really is going on. It's hard work. 
it's like something that I had to kind of, for whatever reason, decide to do as a young man and worked hard at my entire life. You know, I can see people like, you know, why shouldn't I be able to just, you know, read the paper in the morning and watch the news in the evening and be all up to speed? It's like, well, and and by the way, I think that what you're talking about is the way it sh- actually should be, right? But the but the problem is that it's been such a stew of disinformation and misinformation for so long that it's like it's one foundation built on another. We should be able to live in a society where you just drink your coffee and read the paper and you know what's going on. But what you're actually – and I actually, weirdly enough, I think Trump has made a few things clearer and clearer to people. Like like his whole assault on the media is really disgusting, calling them the enemy of the people. But we have started to actually think about what media does and how it does it. Like mainstream media is not just like the most like down-the-middle, unpartisan thing ever. No, like the history of media in this country is completely partisan. Like when – like the the fact that like the New York Times or the Washington Post or MSNBC or any number of these groups can give you news and that you know who they are and that they can like change the way you look at the world is because they have tons of money. And if you have tons of money, you have a vested interest to give news in a certain way. Right. So what you just said is exactly right. I wish that we lived in a society where we could just read up on it and live our lives. That's the way it should be. The unfortunate truth is we have generations upon generations worth of bullshit that we have to sort through. And this is important, and I'm glad you brought it up in this way. I come from, like, a piss-poor family, right? Like, I am an outlier. Like, I am a weird black sheep in the family who went to college and now works as a professor. This stuff, like, even though, like, I went, you know, tens of thousands of dollars into debt to get an education— I didn't learn this in my education. I learned concepts that have helped me to later on understand it, right? I had to do my own research at like the age of 38. I had to devote like a year of my life to like going through these these subjects and understanding them. A lot of people don't have the vocabulary yet or the frame of reference to do that. We have to start telling them, hey, I know this isn't your great idea for a Saturday afternoon. Maybe after you mow the yard, maybe you should read the original notes from the Constitutional Convention. Because I'll tell you, I'll tell you what James Madison said about you, and it wasn't great. Because I'll tell you what, when they got in that room, do you know what they thought about regular people? They thought you were pieces of shit who shouldn't be trusted to use the the government. And they were like, well, we need to figure out a way to keep them from the gears of power. And we need to figure out ways to manipulate them. And when you start realizing that, that it's not like George Washington, you know, on the Delaware and, and, and all this stuff, you start realizing that that myth you've been taught was a religious myth. And when you start realizing that, like, this stuff is all about power and wealth and influence and control, then all of a sudden you realize, oh, that's right. Like, the fact that I don't have any money and that my life has been brutal isn't right. Like, I should be pissed off. And maybe I should be questioning these people. And maybe the Democratic Party and the Republican Party, maybe they're not the answers. And maybe we can start figuring out something real that exists beyond this bullshit mythology. You know, I'm I'm just reminded of talking to you know every once in a while i talk to militia people out here in western pennsylvania and they're all like frustrated like historians and if you like talk to one for like 10 seconds they'll like launch into like this history lesson and go in deep about 
you know, the Confederacy and, you know, and, you know, all this thing that FDR signed and blah, blah, blah. And it's all demonstrably false. So it's not like, but, but it's like the backbone. It's the Lego blocks that they use to construct their worldview. And, you know, just through talking to you here, it occurs to me that like what the mainstream media has done is not all that different, maybe like in degrees, but it's you know liberal propaganda yeah i would i, I would make the argument that it, it is what i would call neoliberal democratic propaganda right like 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 it's done and that's the frustrating thing right it's just like the the, the idea that the militia like we 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 think about these people they're extremist you know what i mean and and they've they've killed people you know and, and and they a lot of them are looking to unseat the government and create what you and I would probably consider a fascistic ethno state right i mean that's what a lot of them are looking for but real fast just on that note they're not always wrong like if you actually if you actually take a look at like things like continuity of government i don't know how much you've looked into this but during the cold war i mean the the powers that be in both parties created this thing called continuity of government which created a shadow government yeah there's literally like if you the washington if you had a list of like all the positions of power there are other guys doing the exact same thing you know just you have no idea what their name is you never voted for them. We have a president, a vice president, you know, all the way down the line. It's crazy. And on top of it, like, in the instance of an emergency, like, there's all this stuff that's on the books that's like, oh, and the Constitution is invalid at that point. And you're like, what? What do, what do, what do you mean it's invalid? And, and listen, I didn't vote for that. You know what I mean? Like, that's really weird and messed up. And think about how much money has been used for that stuff. And then something like, I don't know, a 9-11 happens or, I don't know, climate change takes place. And all of a sudden now it's like you wasted all of that money that you're not even going to use it for. You put the Constitution in danger. And then on top of it, like we didn't get health care, our infrastructure is crumbling apart, our educational system's on in trouble, and we have this artificial state of austerity. And so at that point, you're like, these people, like I understand where they're coming from because these people have done extra legal bullshit. But then you start looking at things like the news media, right? The people who put together this stuff, I think they truly believe that they're helping the world. I think they're like, you know what? I do think America is exceptional because we've done exceptional things. And, you know, there's been beautiful things. And, and by the way, what I'm talking about now is what I call cable news uh, uh, documentary material, which is like Ronald Reagan said the Berlin Wall should fall and then it fell. And like, it's like, no, that's not at all what happened. And it simplifies things and it really kind of ruins the record. And you reach a point, um, this is weird and I didn't expect to talk about it. I don't know if you've studied postmodernism very much, but like eventually with postmodern theory, you reach a point with so many symbolic things that you can't tell the truth anymore. You, you you can't really understand where you are because there's been so many different misleading stories that you look around at some point and you're like, everything is meaningless. What do we do now? And that's where we are. Late stage America is a country that has been held hostage by its myths to the point where it doesn't understand what it is anymore. And to answer the problems, it literally has to roll back and dissect past ideas in order to move forward, we've gotten to the point of an overturn. We have to figure it out in order to have anything in the future. Yeah. You've referred to, when we spoke in the past and also in your book, you've referred to your upbringing as 
like being in a cult or being in a cult? Yeah, I grew up in a really weird situation. I, I refer to it as the cult of the Shining City. And and it's that it's that Confederate Christianity that I did not know. I thought it was just straight real Christianity the way the world worked. But, you know, it was like this Southern Baptist, Pentecostal, nationalistic idea. Like, you know, we read the Bible, but mostly the book of Revelation. You know, we read other books, but mostly New World Order bullshit, you know? And, and like, I was told constantly that the United States was fighting the devil and that the devil could appear and that, you know, people were being possessed left and right and child sacrifices and all this stuff. And the problem is that that cult, which, by the way, was all about power, right? It was all about control and power and economic, you know, hypercapitalism. Um, that was woven in with my religion. And it was just like, my God, my family was so patriotic and they, they were so in total belief in God and Christ and America to the point where the founding fathers were minor deities. You know, Lincoln was a martyr. JFK was a martyr. And there were all of these secret plots that we were constantly fighting. And it, it's it's this mythological cultish idea. And it's what I grew up in. And I didn't know what it was until later on. And uh, that was in Indiana? Yeah, that was in southern Indiana. Southern Indiana. Yeah. And um, did you have a sense at the time, or do you have a sense now? Were you guys outliers? Were your family extra weird? Or were you very much in line with the community? No, that was very much a communal type of thing. I mean, you know, there were certain people, I assume, who didn't believe in that stuff. But, I mean, there was like, I came from a town that, like, a small, small town of a couple of thousand that had, like, the largest Fourth of July parade in the state. You know what I mean? And it was just... And, and, you know, we had like this big giant Independence Day thing. And, and, and it was this idea that you never, ever questioned America. There was nothing to question about America. And everything that happened within America was for the good of America and the good of Americans. And it just, it, it was a very cultish situation. My, my churches were, it was unbelievable, man. Like the, the type of, 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 you know, revelation uh, New World Order type of propaganda and uh, programming that went through. Like, it was so, so bizarre. Like, if you went to the wrong movie, you'd be likely to be possessed that night. You know what I mean? Like, it is just so extreme. Has this kind of thing been... I know that that type of Christianity is part of the uh, kind of nationalist Christian takeover of American life. Um, do you Do you see this, you know, nationalist Christian... Christian strain as an outgrowth of the religion or do you think that like people in power saw the religion and used it you know saw like this was some good clay to work with to take power or is that there that a false you know kind of I think it's I think it's all over the place I mean like so I, I wrote about an American rule like this idea that we sort of existed in and and a reminder I, I grew up in Indiana right like as midwestern as it gets well, you know, right alongside the American flag, almost everywhere you went was the Confederate flag in Indiana, a Midwestern state, right? But when you actually look at history, and this was stuff I didn't know, uh, Indiana was taken over by the Ku Klux Klan in the 20th century. Like, oh, yeah, they absolutely controlled, like, you know, the entire political organ of Indiana politics. And, like, all of a sudden you start realizing that that Confederate ideology spread up to the Midwest during a time, and, and part of the reason that it happened, 
is because uh, of things like Woodrow Wilson, who, by the way, is one of the biggest pieces of shit, like in American history. And you actually find out, and I didn't know this about Wilson, but, you know, Wilson grew up a Confederate apologist. Uh, he he was also a historian who was like one of the creators of the Lost Cause mythology, which was the idea that the Confederacy was actually wonderful and they treated their slaves wonderfully and and that it was, you know, it, it, it was bad, but it figured things out for America and everything was fine. His his books actually got turned into eventually Birth of a Nation, uh, which was weirdly enough, the first movie screened at the White House. And so he did all of this in, in, for power, right? And so you see this thing in the early 20th century. And by the way, he did this in order to create, weirdly enough, a cult of power, a messiahship for himself going into World War I. When he went over to Europe, he was greeted by Europeans as like Christ himself. They called him a deity. They called him a messiah. They called him a savior. And, and it was because he, he really, really tapped into that Confederate ideology, but also that myth of American exceptionalism. So it starts spreading through America. You start seeing states that aren't even in the Confederacy start putting up like Confederate statues. You start seeing them start flying Confederate flags. So it starts getting seeded there, right? But what you end up finding out is after the switch between the Democratic Party and the Republican Party. And for those who might not be familiar, the Democratic Party was the party of white supremacy until the segregation debate and civil rights in the 1960s. Well, when that switches, the Republican Party realizes they can win a lot of elections if they start appealing to that latent white supremacy. So you start seeing like it's it's the religion and then it's the politics. And when they meet, they create that thing that we've been talking about, which is that interconnectedness. Yeah. Um, what a mess. <laughs> what a mess. No, that's exactly right. It's a massive mess. You know, and and we're stuck with it. You know, it's like all this like, you know, behind the scenes playing around, dicking around. It's like now we're stuck with a failed state and we're stuck with, you know, the West is on fire. <laughs> Nobody has health care. We, you know, we have COVID. Um, what a mess. Like what, what comes after the state fails? Well, you know, I, I, I talk about this a lot because people often ask me, because I listen, what we're talking about is not, great <laughs> like you know i'll do i'll do like a radio interview for american rule and and like i think some of the people that i talk to are not prepared like you are to talk about it and they're like oh well moving on you know and they're like thanks for coming on i guess but people ask for hope and here's here's the thing i think that if we disabuse ourselves of this really, really toxic, poisonous mythology. We can suddenly realize that, like, not only do we have power, but we can create, like, a real society. Like, we can create, like, I, I, I'm sorry, but, like, yeah, the, the pandemic has been terrible. Life kind of sucked before the pandemic. We were exploited. Uh, we, we, we've been treated poorly by the government, by employers. We, if you get cancer, God help you. Like, maybe you might get a GoFundMe, you know, that goes viral or, or if not you're just gonna your entire life's over i i feel like the fact that this thing is wearing thin and i think donald trump has done us um a favor 
because he is very transparent. Like, he's obviously incompetent. He's a total, utter moron and boob. So eventually you're like, oh, man, something's off here. Like, I, something's flickering, right? I feel like I feel like there's one of two things that are going, well, maybe three, because there's always the middle that's a combination of the two. I think we're on the precipice of either fascism reinforcing the myth through violence, which is what fascists do. They, they say you either fall in line with our version of reality or you're met with violence and murder, intimidation, and, and you know, you can be removed. Or we can swing the pendulum of power, remember that we have power, remember that the government is supposed to serve us through the social contract, and that we start relying on one another through grassroots and communal efforts, and we turn the ship around. And we stop worrying about hegemony and maybe we step back from the empire business and maybe we start working on, I don't know, basic human decency and, and you know, the bettering of lives. I mean, those are possibilities. We could do that. But the first thing we have to do is we have to pretty much dismantle the bomb of fascism in this nationalist mythology. Well, I think we're two for two ending on a somewhat optimistic note, which I never thought would be possible. So... <laughs> Thank you for that. I'll take it, man. I'll take it. I'll take it. What y'all gonna do? Uncle Jam Thomason, public enemy, Cypress Hill. Let's do this. Oh, oh shit. shit. No more grid. We all addicted. Men, women, and kids. No internet, no text, and no sweets. We look like the 80s with things in the streets. Oh, Surprised we didn't get into the Trump COVID diagnosis. We all woke up to it, and it's on everybody's minds, but sometimes these things go where they go. Uh, make sure you check out Jared's uh, podcast, the Muckrake podcast, uh, that he does with Nick Hasselman. Hasselman? Nick something. Uh, yeah, and uh, for links to everything, uh, check out the show notes, and thanks for listening. Critical thing, you better be ready. Emotional effects may be deadly. Masses to run steady. The depression hits like a Tyson blow. Isolation on another level. Who's responsible? I don't know. I got a theory. If you hit me, but you wanna fear me. Dumb us down, then divide us up. I see it clearly. Pit one against the other, even though we're brothers. Make us hate each other while they keep their asses covered. What you gonna do when the grid goes down? What you gonna do when the grid goes down? What you gonna do when the grid goes down? Seeing what's really wrong with these racist days. I honor the strong and pity the weak. Your thoughts run your life. Be careful what you think. Haiti beat France in century 17. Salute Tucson and Dessaline. 
And I do love France, know what I mean? It's a system I'm talking, nobody's agreeing. They say it's suicide when dead bodies are swinging. Cowards are hunting black men, that's what I'm seeing. How many toasters have been burnt down? And once Central Park was a thriving black town. Yo, Chuck, I'm fighting the power right now. Thanks to you, Flav, and P.E. Putting it down, putting your life on the line so I can rap now. The next generation still singing Fight the Power. Okay, talk to me about the future of Public Enemy. 